Today's conversation is with Tony McAleer, and this is the Talented Human Podcast. Gary B tweeted on Twitter saying, hey, I really need help on YouTube. Please email me. They ended up offering me a job to work as a YouTube analyst on Team Gary. are in control of you. What you learn is Focusing on reflection for the past couple of years, it's really incredible because you're able to see benchmarks in your own team. know what you want. For me, I just joined it out of time because I was just afraid of it. The thing the past right now is because I was watching. Don't need your universities anymore. I totally do need that. Like are you interested in it? Are you passionate about it? Are you excited about it? Have you explored yourself enough to know? Is entrepreneurship something you're cut out for? I am speaking with Tony McAleer. He is the author of The Cure for Hate, a former, a former white supremacist journey from violent extremism to radical compassion. He is also the co-founder of Life After Hate. Uh, welcome to the show, Tony. It is an incredible pleasure to have you on the show. Um, this is not necessarily uh, a topic that has to do with um, with you know entrepreneurship, and it, it's not necessarily something that has to do with you know you know teaching young people about business and you know caring for ourselves on, you know, on a mental health as we, you know, build businesses and stuff. But I do believe this is a huge, huge topic to talk on the mental health space. And it is something that, that we need to, that we need to share. I, uh, I am fascinated by, by your story, by your, by your bravery and your, you know, your courage to, to accept yourself um, both today and from the past. And with, with that, I just want to say welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I can't believe that I, I get to, to learn today so much. And as much as our, as our, as our guests will learn, uh, or as our, uh, our listeners will, will learn today, because I am not someone that's uh, particularly well-versed on, on this topic, as you know, as I told you on the uh, pre-conversation. And I... I I'm basically just going to give you um, a platform to kind of tell us your story a little bit, and and then I'll just interject with a few questions here and there to to kind of like um, you know have a conversation. But at the same time, I just want to learn a lot about you and a lot about what you've done and 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 how how it all you know you know came basically for so full circle for you. Sure. Sure. So, I mean, I think to start off, we have to go back to where it starts for most people, and that's that's childhood. Um, I was born to a middle class, upper middle class family. Uh, My father was a doctor, um, psychiatrist. Maybe maybe that's the issue. (laughs) Um, Went to private school and, and, you know, never went for anything want of material. Um, You know, but I grew up in in a household that, you know, that wasn't necessarily safe emotionally. And I, I want your listeners to think of who they were at the age of four, you know, and then I think back to who little Tony was. I was this bright, curious, mischievous, stubborn, defiant, sensitive little guy that was, um, you know, open to the world. And, you know, that's the, whatever you come up with about yourself, that's the core essence of who we are. That's who we come into the world to be. Um, nobody's born a neo-Nazi. And, and then life 
happens to us and we learn maybe not to be so sensitive or learn not to be so open and and we put on shields and armor and masks in order for us to to feel safe um you know as human beings we really just want two things one is to be safe and one is to feel loved and and love looks like attention acceptance um, and approval is that a pretty normal upbringing when i was 10 I walked in on my father with another woman and that really rocked my my world and and uh I was angry I was really confused I felt betrayed and and it really really rocked me and and I went from listening to Elton John and Queen to the Clash and the and the Sex Pistols and I went from an AB student to a CD student, you know, over the next um, next year or two. And I remember when I was 11 in grade six, um, being told by you know the the teacher, they they got together with my parents, and I think it was my dad's idea. They tried all the carrots in the world to motivate me, but I was, I, you know, I'd sort of tuned out authority figures in my life at that point. Um, so. when the carrots didn't work they suggested the stick literally and if i didn't get an a or a b on major tests and assignments i was marched down the hall into this office had to bend over uh, a desk and got hit on the rear end with uh, with a meter stick and the first time it was 2 then it was 4 then it was 6 it was never more than 8 over and over and over again and and i even to this day i don't think i've ever felt more powerless than i did in that office over and over and over again and the reason i tell you that is i'm i'm not here to make excuses i'm not here to blame anything on my childhood everything yeah. i i chose to do and yeah, just for context what year was that uh that would have been 1978 okay Yeah, they don't do that in schools nowadays. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> not in this country. Yeah. Uh, so the the reason I share that is is like I said I don't I don't blame anything on my childhood and none of this is is an excuse. Um but I share it so you can understand the the lens through I made the decisions because everything I did I chose to do and human beings don't do anything without a without a payoff. So it's to, to understand the lens through which I made those choices. The analogy I like to use is: Have you ever gone to the grocery store when you're really hungry? You know, we we shop we shop at a different part of the grocery store than when we're not when we're not hungry, right? You know, the junk food and stuff like that. And, I I remember going to to a supermarket in Miami called Publix after smoking a big bag of marijuana with my friends and being out of this world stoned. buying $60 worth of stuff i never ate so maybe kind of like that <laughs> yeah no it's, it, we we feel that you know we still have to take responsibility we still shell out the cash and we put the things in our cart we can't you know we can't deny that we had agency but you know there's you know through the through the lens in your case of marijuana those i those things looked like the right idea at the time and and that's that's how it is that's how it was with um with me and and I'd have to take accountability and responsibility for everything I did I I don't share this so that 
to slough off that at, at, at all. I fully accept the choices that I made and the harm that I did to individuals and to, and to communities. But that was the lens through which I made those, those decisions. And, you know, by three or four, but by the time I got to the end of grade nine, you know, the school said, look, we've, we've had enough to my parents, you know, it's not any one thing that I did that was worthy of expulsion, but my general level of defiance, I just like my, it was like the purpose of my existence was to undermine authority in the, in the classroom. And, and, uh, you know, if I could make a teacher lose their temper and flip out on me, my dad used to say, you know, the teacher said, you know, when he got angry with you, you smile. And because that was my way of um, feel from feeling powerless to getting my power back. If I could hijack that teacher's emotional state, it meant I had power over him. If I could get him to lose control, it meant I had power over him. And, you know, that, those games that I played with authority figures in grade five and grade six, um, those patterns I carried through into, into my adult life. Um, fast forward a couple of years and I'm sort of into the punk scene and, and I go to boarding school in England for a year where I meet skinheads for the first time. And, and when I come back and I remember I was at, uh, the very first punk show in Vancouver, I was 16, I was just about to turn 16 and, uh, I was wearing my Doc Martens, which were a dime a dozen in England, but rare and expensive in North America at the time. Um, and I and I was waiting, to, I had a ticket to get it going and see Black Flag with Henry Rollins was my very first punk show. And it's not a bad one line, to go to. You know, with a, huh? Yeah, it's no, that's a, a <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. And I'm standing there with my friend waiting to get into the, into the show and these two skinheads come walking down the line. And I, I remember skinheads, you know, when I met them in England, um, they terrified me. Um, you know, and there, there was, you know, and excitement around that as well and everybody feared them and so these guys walked down checking everybody out and they stop at me they look at my doc martens they look at me they look at me and they go what size feet you have i know why they're asking because it's going to take them so i lied and i said seven and a half and the one guy you know way bigger than i was looked at the other guy and said no nah, they wouldn't fit anyways and they walked off those two guys became my best friends because my bullying survival strategy was befriend the bully, become the bully. And I know my, my parents were beside them not with these guys and, and they're going like, what do you mean? I'm like, you've got university, you've got careers, you've got a whole thing ahead of you. Why are you choosing to hang out with those guys? And you know, when I think about it, um, they had the one thing that I didn't have. And that was toughness. Nobody feared me. They were feared. You know, I was this skinny, scrawny, at the time, I was maybe 135 pounds, they were like 160, and the other guy was 200. Um, when I was with them, people feared. Uh, and so I sought the, the, the safety in the eye of the hurricane. And in order for me to have their protection, I had to have their respect. And in order for me to have their respect, I had to commit all the same violence that, that they committed. And, um, which came really awkward to me at first because I wasn't a tough kid growing up. I'd maybe been in half a dozen schoolyard fights. Um, 
and so it was awkward at first but i you know the more i did it the less awkward it felt the more normal it felt the more desensitized i became until i became i was never a great street fighter but uh, competent i say and um, somebody asked me once, you know, Tony, how did you lose your humanity? He was such a nice guy, friendly guy. How did you lose your humanity? And I said, I didn't lose it. I traded it for acceptance and approval until there was nothing left. So at the time, the skin thing wasn't overtly um, racist. It was very nationalist, very jingoistic, all that kind of thing. Um, and, the, you know, the music was about drinking, fighting, and football hooliganism and, and that kind of thing. Um, but in 1984-85, there was a single, you know, called White Power by Screwdriver, and that turned the whole, uh, globally turned the whole skinhead thing upside down, and it became very overtly uh, white supremacist. And, you know, the within the skinhead scene, there was the, you know, the white power skinheads, and they were more feared than the other skinheads and within the white power skinheads, you know, as the more I got in, the more, um, you know, once it felt normal, I had to keep going to the edge. And, and I went to, you know, neo-Nazi, you went to um, more and more extreme. Um, and, you know, was leader of a group called the Aryan resistance movement. I think we had about 13 chapters across Canada it was the largest skinhead or neo-Nazi skinhead organization in Canada for a period. And, and then I went down to Aryan Nations in Idaho because the, the skinhead thing wasn't wasn't enough. I had to keep going. So I went to Aryan Nations and Aryan Nations wasn't enough. So I went to even sort of more extreme with white Aryan resistance in, in Tom and, and uh got involved right into the right into the depths of it. And uh then I got to a point where I gave up the the, the skinhead identity. You know, I didn't wear the boots. I didn't wear the jacket. I put on a suit and tie. I was on the Montel Williams show, a um, national talk show on TV. In 1989, I was dressed like a skinhead. By 1991, I was in a suit and tie. And that was all in an effort to mainstream um, the message, to look less skinhead and more like Richard Spencer before Richard Spencer was even born, I think. <laughs> um, and I continued my my journey, and you know all all along. And I and I go back to my my childhood. You know my my father loved us very much, um, and as a psychiatrist, he worked 70, 80 hours a week, and I didn't get to see a whole lot of them. You know, often he would come home when I was in in bed when I was young, and so his um, his time and attention and and affection were um, in short supply. You know, and uh, so I craved the moments I did get to, to spend with him. And if I think about what my uh, favorite memory with my father it was, is um, you know, he's uh, he's a, a guy from England, and there's nothing more English than an Englishman abroad. Um, he hated the beer in Canada, so he started brewing his own English ales. He built a, a copper-topped English bar in the basement and had all English pub mirrors and invited all his English friends over to to listen to English music, drink English beer, and talk about English things. It was, you know, he had an English pub in the basement, right? Um, but my, my favorite memory with him is he, he had an English sports car, an MGB, little convertible thing. Okay. And, and I remember when I was 
remember when I was a kid, Batman and Robin, you know, was my favorite TV show. You know, the really corny Adam West and Kablow. Um, and so we go in the summertime, we go ripping around and you take me for, you know, rides in the highway and in this little sports car. And, and I fantasized that we were like Batman and Robin. And, and I was, uh, I was Robin and he was Batman. We were in the Batmobile, you know, cruising around. And that became the model for my relationship with, um, with men as I, as I got older. And, and as, um, as I started to get deeper and deeper into the organized white supremacist scene, um, I was like the star pupil to these older men who were like father figures to me that gave me all the attention, acceptance and approval that I, uh, not in a healthy way that I craved from my father, but couldn't get from my father. And so I was always doing, um, pushing the boundaries of, you know, organizing or using technology or all these things to to get their their approval. That was the currency that 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 I saw. The the only problem with that model relationship is that it's inherently unequal. Batman and Robin aren't equals, and for there to be a healthy relationship in this life, it has to be based on equality. So it was a very flawed. Uh, model of relationship but even to my adult life until I you know I felt I figured it out that was how I positioned myself and I gave all my power to these people and and sort of curried their favor the the whole time to be the um like I said the, the star the star pupil the little boy uh, and I would go to whatever ends in order to to achieve that let me ask you a question uh, sure did you um through this um, through this process, through this journey that you were going through, um, did you ever encounter someone that that other than your family, other than your parents, that kind of like you know maybe a school friend or something that kind of said, "Dude, why are you doing this?" Or you know, this shouldn't be the people that that you should be hanging around with, um, or or someone that questioned your you know what you were doing in a in a way that, that made you thought differently or 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 that you know how did, how do you react to that like I if, think it, people, if it happened i think people did try but i didn't respect them enough to value their opinion okay and and the other thing is you know uh, you know in the early years of this it was like the honeymoon phase in a relationship. You know, have you ever had a friend that goes head over heels uh, with, with another boy or a girl or whatever? And it's like, oh my God, I can't believe they like the same blueberry jam for Oregon that I do. It's like, it's a sign. <laughs> you know, it's, you get all sort of crazy. And, and in that state, there's nothing you can say to them. You, you, you can see brain wreck waiting to happen. But they're smitten and there's nothing, nothing, uh, you can say that'll make a lick of difference until that wear wears off, uh, and, yeah. and there's a chemical, there's a chemical process behind that, and it, it happens in all our all our relationships, not just romantic ones. The challenge is it wasn't just something I believed in; it was my identity. It became my identity. It was who I was, and it became the source of, of my fear. People had, which I falsely equated with power and a falsely equated with respect. It was 
who I was. It was what I listened to. It was the friends I hung out with. It was the movies I watched. It was, it wasn't that I believed in white supremacy. I believed that it, it was who I was. It was my, yeah. from the core, core of my being. So, and that's, you know, it's a great point you bring up because that's the challenge when we come across someone that we don't agree with the the natural urge the natural inclination is well if, if they just knew the right figures about immigration or you know if i just show them these facts i can persuade them <coughs> excuse me i can persuade them on a different different course you know if i could just talk to my uncle at the thanksgiving dinner you know about why he shouldn't vote for trump um you know but the the reason it doesn't work is because we're not it, it's not based on facts it's it's a it's it's an emotional thing it's identity so if you were asking me to leave that behind you're not asking me to believe something different you're asking me to give up my identity and that i'd spent so much time and effort to build you know my my social circle you know friends uh, all of that fear and respect and, and all of those things that that i value you have to give those up and that's that's why you you know going in um the intuitive things to say well give them facts but and, and it never works that's the last thing um, we need to do and i was reading a very interesting article in ink magazine about uh research that had been done about how how do you how do you talk to someone who's in denial of reality and it's it was about could be in denial about anything you know and uh, a, you know, someone at work that they manage, you know, um, and it wasn't about, it wasn't about coming in and addressing it factually. It was about how do you, how do you do it with emotional intelligence so that you give them a way to give up that belief without losing face or seeing wrong because to the, the ego will fight to the death to be right. You know, and, and that's because the ego's survival depends on on that that identity, and so there's there's a you know a fierce struggle that happens. You have to create a way for the the ego to let go of the identity and adopt a new one, without without being shattered in the process. And going in factually um, triggers all the um, ego defense mechanisms because when you go in factually, you're <clears throat> You're actually, when you attack the ideology, you're actually attacking the person's identity and all the defenses come up. Um, did you ever second guess yourself? Or did you ever, did you ever think, uh, especially at the beginning when you were, when you were discovering the violence side of things and, and doing, you know, like you said, the same, Things that did you ever did you ever feel that did you ever have that moment where it's like what am I doing or was it just absolutely I I wasn't born a true psychopath <laughs> I wasn't born a, a sociopath so, I mean there's a small number of people that who are yeah guys, they're yeah. psychopathic and that's who they are um, but you know once I got into the swing of things I would have presented as as a sociopath and <clears throat> sure i had the 
misgivings and I had pangs of guilt and I, you know and I had you know I was brought up as a as a Catholic um don't worry the private school beat the Catholicism on me but <laughs> but I was <laughs> you know that it, it, it gave me a, a sense of a general sense of right and wrong and, and I had to you know it was a struggle to overcome that um because once the the adrenaline rush of the violence kicked in and and the, the feeling of power when you win uh, a battle or with a group of people or a, or a, or a fight it's intoxicating and the the further i went down this path the more i stuffed my feelings and compartmentalized my feelings away <clears throat> and under shields of armor and masks to project to the world someone who i wasn't um at that point that's when i would have pro projected uh, you would have met me and said that guy's a that guy's a sociopath um now the you know on the on the flip side coming out of that <clears throat> i had to remove that armor and take off those masks and, and beginning begin the journey to discover rediscover who little tony was and get back to the core essence of my being and get back to to my rediscover my humanity. Uh, I believe that the level to which we dehumanize other human beings for any reason is a mere reflection of our own internal disconnection and dehumanization. And the less I could feel my own humanity, the less I could um, recognize humanity in others. And in my journey back from the abyss, the more I discovered and connected to my own humanity, the more I could recognize it and connect to it externally to me. Um, the, um, it's, it's just so many things going on in my head. Um, actually, hold on, I'm gonna take a, a quick bit here. I'm gonna take a photo of us on this. Um, just because this is, uh, I want to share something about this conversation later on today. Uh, and I, it's funny because I'm usually someone that can like rebottle in a conversation, go back and forth. And um, a lot of this stuff, um, and I was prepared for this, uh, stumps me a little bit because I've, I've always been the kind of person where striving to be better every day to be a good human being um has always been at the core of, of who i am you know like you said my identity is that to to be that of a human being and and someone like like who you were before would have you know automatically be cat categorized by me as, as not a good human and um, you know, in, in a very judgmental way, because you know, I, I try not to judge people because I'm no one to judge anybody. I was also raised Catholic, and uh, um, you know, the um, the saying that you know only God can judge us is true to me. Uh, I am nobody to judge anybody. Your mistakes are yours, and you know, we learn from it, and you are a prime example of that. Um, and for that, I'm extremely happy. 
And um, because, you know, I do believe in, in second chances. Uh, and while as a human, as a person, myself and my identity is like, you know, I'm a very black and white person with a very thin gray area. Um, I do believe that, you know, we, we all make mistakes and we all, you know, uh, you know, for lack of a better statement, fuck it up. And, um, and I, and God knows I fucked it up at many levels before. And I've made my, my share of mistakes and, and I've had shares of successes, but, um, yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you find that moment? How did that moment come about when you say, I need to change this? How did that come for you? How did you make this switch? Um, and, and I have a very personal question to ask. Um, did your father get to see the change? Yes, my father's still alive. Okay. Um, but my father was, uh, was bombed by the Germans in Liverpool during World War II. So um, you couldn't stand what I was involved in. And, and you know, I, I suspect, you know, I often ask people this question, look at your behaviors and beliefs and ask yourself these questions. Is it the same as one of my parents? Is it the opposite of one of my parents? Or is it actually mine? And it's funny when you do that, that um, um, inventory, uh, we, we see uh, often it's the same or the polarity, you know, because that's the, which, which is the other side of the same coin, right? You know, um, what does someone who goes to AA and an alcoholic have in common? Their lives are both defined by alcohol. Um, and so, you know, with my dad, there was a whole, you know, the being English and nationalist and being into football and ale and all of that stuff, which was all part of the skinhead lifestyle, was all ways in which I false bonded with my father. You know, I did things that he liked, although he couldn't stand the skinhead thing. I did things that he liked in order for me to get, get approval. But I also did things that I knew he would hate. And, you know, it's a funny way to be angry with, with your father is, is to knowing that um, he was bombed by the Germans during World War II to have a poster of Hitler, the guy who sent the bombs on my bedroom wall. There's, there's funny, um, deeper underlying psychological things at, at work. And, um, you know, for me, it was having someone that started with the birth of my children um, help me recognize my humanity again. And, and, you know, through compassion, I think is, is one of the key things. And when we're compassionate with someone, we hold a mirror up and allow them to see their humanity reflected back at them. And, and I'm just going to back it up a little bit. So, you know, why is compassion um, effective to help someone see their, their humanity? When I was, involved in the depth of what I was involved with. I was so disconnected from my own humanity, from my heart. Um, it wasn't funny. I was operating solely from ego and narcissism. 
and I'd shut my heart off and, and feeling and stuffed all that, all that stuff away. And so how do, how do people, you know, get like that? And, you know, and, I, and I'll rewind it even a little bit more and, and talk about it in a general sense. I think at the core of, of a lot of dysfunction in society is, is what I call toxic shame. And toxic shame is like the alienation of the self. It's um, it's the flawed self-identity belief system that we carry around because of what's been said to us or what's happened to us, often in childhood. And it's the, the belief we carry that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're less than, we're flawed, we're... We're not capable of, of things. We're not, you know, what, whatever that, that belief system is. And, and we go out in the world and we live our lives in reaction to that. And, you know, and it, and it plays out in one of two ways. Um, we either export it onto other people and we project it or we do it to ourselves. So, um, you know, if I feel that I'm weak and powerless, I can go out into the world and prove to people that I'm powerful. And, and, and that's why the, the, the violence and hanging out with skinheads and the false sense of power through fear were so attractive to me because I had that deficit of feeling powerful. I felt powerless and I felt unlovable and I felt invisible. And when I went out into that world, I got power when I felt powerless, I got acceptance when I felt unlovable, and I got attention when I felt invisible, um, projecting it onto other people. And the flip side is we do it to our, we, we project that onto ourselves and we numb the feeling or we engage in self-destructive behavior. So like addiction, toxic shame is the root of addiction, uh, eating disorders, cutting, risky sexual behavior, playing a sport where you break a bone every every um, second month or something like that. Internalized toxic shame, the, the ultimate action of internalized toxic shame is suicide. And the ultimate action of externalized toxic shame is murder. We either project it or we do it to the self. And, um, you know, just because somebody has toxic shame or events that have created, you know, ch childhood trauma uh, and emotional trauma, you know, or usually at the origin of, of toxic shame, although you can have emotional trauma without a physical or sexual abuse component. <clears throat> and, you know, it doesn't tell us that someone's going to be a violent extremist or a racist or a neo-Nazi, but if you look in the histories, you know, and the research, the number one correlated factor in the history of somebody joining a violent extremist group is childhood trauma. Um, when you look at that research that goes further and you look at the rates of addiction amongst people in the white supremacist movement, you know, through substance abuse or whatever, it's up into the 70s or, or the 80s. So a lot of this is, you know, driven by, by toxic shame. And I think in, in this world, there's also collective shame. And I think there's, you know, the, the, the unspoken collective shame that African-Americans feel it in the legacy of slavery or the indigenous First Nations people 
of North America through colonialism and residential schools and and genocide and and it all um, intertwines and it gets passed on intergenerationally. There's a great book about toxic shame called Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw. Um, he was an addictions guy. You know, if we look at um, Dr. James Gilligan, who was a, a forensic psychiatrist at San Quentin, 20, 25 years. So he never saw an act of violence rooted in shame or humiliation. Um, so these are very powerful drivers. Again, they're not an excuse, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's a compensation for that, that shame, that feeling of being less than. And so what is the antidote to shame and toxic shame? And it, do you know the difference between healthy shame and toxic shame? Uh, no, I don't, I mean, not really. I, 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 I so hope we're shaming people in, in a, as a toxic thing. I, I, I can't say that I'm familiar with healthy shaming. But. Yeah, well, I mean, healthy shame is, is kind of like guilt. It's like I did wrong. You know, okay. it's healthy when you know you, you know, you internally you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You, you, it's, a, it's a healthy sense that, you know, you, you've crossed the limits of your own values. You know, that's when it sort of kicks in. I did wrong, right? Um, I did bad. Toxic shame is I am wrong. I am bad. And it's there 24-7. It's not just something um, that's, you know, transitory. Emotions are, even anger is is healthy when it's transitory. Healthy emotions, you know, they come and they go. Yeah. Um, when they're there 24-7, that they become unhealthy. And so if I'm feeling less less than human, what's the antidote to that? And, and that's where compassion comes in. Um, because when we help people recognize the humanity within themselves, they can connect to their humanity and they can feel more than human. Compassion is the antidote to shame. And so I remember, you know, with my two children, they were born 15 months apart. And I remember being in the delivery room and being held this beautiful little, tiny, fragile little baby girl and, you know, her arms are squirming and her little scrunchy face. And, you know, she opens, opens her eyes. And the first blurry picture her brain takes is, is, is me. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that I walked out of that delivery room, um, not a white supremacist, um, but that, that experience in that delivery room absolutely, uh, changed me and I think for the first time in my life I thought of someone else other than myself uh, at the age of 20 I thought I'd be dead or in jail by the age of 30 as a white revolutionary now it wasn't that wasn't such an easy thing to, to commit to or to, um, or, or to say and I, think I was only 22 23 when uh, when I had my first child but you know the the beautiful thing about children is they're safe to love right and you know, these two children that saw the, the, to me, I was amazing. And, you know, this wonderful, you know, data, I don't know that I was a good dad or, uh, you know, bad dad, they turned out good, which is, which is, which is good. But, you know, through their eyes I, and their love for me, I saw my humanity reflected back at me through their, through their eyes. You know, they didn't even understand what the concept of compassion was yet through their action. Um, that's exactly, they saw the humanity in me when I couldn't see it 
in, in myself when I looked in the mirror. And the beautiful thing about children is that are safe to love is I, I closed off my heart and closed off feeling because it wasn't safe to be open. You know, I, I learned that. And but children, they're not capable of shaming or ridicule or rejection. So it was easy for me to open up a little bit and let a bit of it in. And, you know, this is, this is safe. I'm not going to get hurt if I allow myself to be open and to feel. And, and it began a, a, a fine process. I will say that, you know, by the time they hit 13, that's all they want to do to their parents is shame and rejection. And ridicule. <laughs> let me ask you a question. Did you, is that when you started seeing um, uh, little Tony again? A little bit. children, like little that bit. kid that was just curious and 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 without knowing it, okay. You know, and, and you know, the wonderful thing about you know parenting my son, I have the daughter came first and then the son, is I got to parent my son the way that I always wanted to be parented. So I was, you know, all through his life, I was at all every single one of his 6 a.m. hockey practices and you know, helped coach the soccer team. And I got to buy him the toys that I always wanted as a kid that <laughs> didn't matter. Projecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the record, it was the Tonka Backhoe. And, um, and, and that was very therapeutic and, and, and cathartic for me. But I didn't, I didn't know what was, what was happening. It got to a point where being in this completely dysfunctional, misogynistic environs that is you know there's the ideology and then there's the complete mess of all the people that are drawn to it and the dysfunction that it happens in all of those social circles that was no place where i wanted to raise my kids never never mind my daughter and so it was easy became easier for me to decide to leave and when i decided to leave um you know i had to rationalize it in a way to keep my identity intact so i said look i'm not gonna you know i had gone to the supreme court of canada twice with um, human rights complaints against my phone line and I was very much involved in technology and the, the internet and I built one of the first white power websites in 1994 right at the very beginning of, uh, of the web for web for uh, uh, they don't want to call it the web anymore <laughs> the internet the internet the, yeah no it's the uh, let's call it the uh the super speed highway of information. The interweb. The uh, interweb. <laughs> um, you know, and, I, and I, I said, why should I fight for a bunch of white people that couldn't care if I lived or died? You know, because, you know, white, white people would spit on me if I was handing out pamphlets on the, uh, on the street or whatever. <clears throat> if I really want to, if I really want to care for the white race, then I make sure these two children thrive and survive. And you know, going back to that 14 words, we must secure the existence of our race and or, or people in the future for white children. That was how I left the movement behind to focus on raising the two children, which I did as a single father from the time they were two and four, but kept my identity intact. Right? That was the the ego rationalization that I and hoops that I jumped through. How do I be, Become a single parent and keep my identity intact. And that was that was what I did. But the, but the amazing thing that kind of happened and, and helped there was 
Um, and this is the second piece of compassion that came in was, was my mom who never gave up on me, hated what I did. Um, and she taught me the, the lesson about healthy boundaries and consequences. And I needed help raising the two children by myself. I could barely run my own life, never mind raising two children. And she offered to help, but she used, um, you know, her love for me was unconditional, but her relationship with me was very conditional. And if I wanted her help to raise these two children, then I had to distance and, and pull away from the movement that was you know, so much my identity. The interesting thing that happened is that, and it's, it's not fair, but you know, back in the 90s as a, as a single dad, I got all kinds of tension, acceptance, and approval in a very healthy way for being a single dad. And it became easy for me to let go of the identity of being the white supremacist leader and embrace the identity of being the the single father. What what led to to you being a single father? Um, the the relationship was kind of doomed from the, the beginning. I was in the middle of breaking up with her after three months when she told me she was pregnant, and so it was. We tried to make it work, but you know we were we were um, we were too much into our into our, our wounds to be able to have a healthy relationship. And if we don't have a healthy relationship with ourselves, we possibly have a healthy relationship with another human being. And my relationship with myself, my acceptance of myself, all of those things uh, was terrible. I was, I was projecting my wounds onto the world. And, and in this relationship, we just projected our wounds onto each other. And it was, uh, it was not a good relationship. And, um, you know, so I, I left the movement in 1998 and, you know, in, in this, we call disengagement, you know, you leave the social activity behind, you leave the social circles. And the most difficult part of that is, is the loneliness. You know, when we join a violent extremist group we, or, you know, white supremacist group or whatever, you know, in, in, in search of, you know, attention, acceptance, approval, you know, because we can't get it over here. Um, we basically excommunicate ourselves from friends, family, and society. And when we go to leave that movement behind, we have to excommunicate ourselves from the people in that movement. Um, but, you know, we, we come back to friends, family, and society. They're not waiting with open arms to welcome us back. We violated the trust in those relationships, and those relationships need to be rebuilt. And that trust has to be we earned and we have we spend time in a place in the middle that I call the void where we don't have a social circle and it's incredibly lonely and I think it's in that space that um, is the greatest risk of sliding back into the old group because the pain of of the loneliness in that moment seems greater than the pain of the dysfunction of staying in the, in the group and one of the things life after hate did was create a an online social circle, a uh, peer support group in the void, so that you, people didn't don't have to make that that journey on their own. But even though I'd I'd left the movement, um, I was still a jerk. I was still mean spirited. I was still angry. I still listened to angry music and that kind of thing. And it wasn't until I met uh, a guy in in two thousand five when I started. Um, a new career as a financial advisor and in my 
after a year and I was I was doing okay, I was doing pretty good. Um, he, he held these personal development and personal growth workshops, you know, about getting out of getting out of your own your own way to success. And at the beginning for me, it was all about you know ego and abundance and wealth, and I was gonna <clears throat> turbocharge my career and and you know live my dreams and all that kind of thing. And and it worked, you know, and and my career really started to take off. And then and then after about eight months and I'd done all of the different programs, the guy who introduced us, it's my birthday, and he hands me a gift certificate in an envelope. So I open up the envelope and I'll gift certificate, and it's like one-on-one counseling, you know, certificate. And I'm like, great, who doesn't want therapy for their birthday, right? And I'm sitting there in his office. And I'm, I'm telling about my dad and why I'm angry at him and, and all of that. And I, when it comes time to <clears throat> talk about my past, I'm hesitant. And, and this is a, you know, a guy, he's, he's from Manchester. I'm from Liverpool. He's about 10 years older. And we bonded over weird, quirky English things like Monty Python. And it, it was a pretty cool guy. And we were, we were kind of friends. And I'm like, go ahead, tell him the rest. Because when people found out about the rest, in, in in my life, it was the end of the relationship usually. And this was a relationship I valued. And so I'm humming and hawing and and he's you know staring at the carpet for some sort of answer. And and he goes, look, mate, you know, we've we've only got an hour. Um what is it you want to say? Just let it out. And, I, and I'm humming and hawing and looking at a different part of the carpet for an answer. And he goes, look, just let it out. It's okay. It's safe. You look like you're trying to swallow three golf balls. And uh, I decided to throw caution to the wind and overcome my fear. And, and so I tell him about being a skinhead, being a neo-Nazi, being all of that. And the more I tell him, the more he smiles. And the more he smiles, the more I get annoyed. I'm like, here I am burying my soul in my first therapy session. This guy's laughing at me. And I go, what's so funny? He leans in with a big grin on his face and goes, you know, I'm Jewish, right? And I thought, of course. Of course, this guy's Jewish. Of course, my friend is Jewish. And and but uh, there I am sinking back in in shame, knowing that I advocated for the annihilation of him and his people at one point. And and he says to me, "That's what you did. That's not who you are. I see you. I see little Tony." And I started crying and, and evolving in that vulnerability and have someone see through all of the, the bullshit, all of the masks and the armor and just go right in and see little Tony. And, and um, I get, I'll get a little emotional thinking about it right now. And, and uh, that was the, the beginning of, uh, of an incredible relationship where when we're, we're he's still a coach and mentor to me uh to me today but over the next five or six years i probably did a thousand hours of one-on-one and and group counseling to go back and pull off the masks and get rid of the armor and learn to be vulnerable to connect to my humanity learn to be authentic and and the more i did it the more my life and relationships improved and so it became um i gotta keep doing it like i staying in my comfort zone is not not the answer i gotta keep like layers of the onion i gotta keep 
pulling these layers off. And, you know, and I, and I think back to, to that day in that, that office and, you know, here's this Jewish man, if, if he can love me, um, why can't I love myself? And he taught me to love myself and, uh, and through his example. And, and again, that's compassion. You know, as, as a Jewish man dealing with, you know, a guy who was a Holocaust denier and a neo-Nazi, but he saw the humanity in me. And through him, I was able to reconnect um, to the humanity that he, that, that he saw in, in me. And, and that's, the, that's the antidote to, to that shame piece. And he was my guide to um, moving the, the the shadow that shame cast upon our, our lives and you know, there's an old say I don't think it's his but I, I always remember learning it from him you know don't let your past put your future in a headlock and I think um, you know and, and this would be of interest to entrepreneurs when we do this journey inward when we we discover who we truly are and embrace who that is and embrace vulnerability um, and get rid of all of the stuff that isn't us. Um, life becomes transformed, and you know what we what we view about people, places, and things is based upon subjective meaning. We had values we attached based on experiences to you know what um, what's going on around us, and it's almost like a like having a time machine when we can go back and change the subjective meaning to people places and things we change our reality and how we perceive the present and if if there's things that have happened in our past that is polluting our present we go we go back and work on changing what those past events subjectively mean to us and it changes the present we can get past all kinds of blockages i know i got i got past the, the the burdens of what I had done and the violence I'd committed and the communities that I'd harmed and the individuals that I'd harmed with my words and with my with my deeds and um you know with with Dobbs compassion became accountability you know it was a package deal and so it wasn't just about me going back and and healing myself and rediscovering myself living a better life, then I had to take that message to help others uh, do the same. So in 2011, I, at, uh, you know, having a very successful financial advisory career, which I still have, um, to go public and start talking about this stuff, because I was, you know, hiding from my past, and to help people who are where I once was, and, and not just that, to go back to the communities that I had harmed, um, in reconciliation and to try and undo and make amends uh, for the harm that I did. And I did that with the gay community. I did that locally with the Jewish community. I did that with the Indo-Canadian community here. Uh, we don't have much of a, a black population in Vancouver, but um, you know, I've done that in other places. But I think it's very important. It's not just that I left white supremacy behind, that I engaged in activities to undo to undo what I had done and to um, 
make the world a, a, a better place. I've got quite a debt that I have to, to overcome. And I think as human beings in this world, we come from one of two places, you know, fear or love. And we get to, we get to choose which one. And for 15 years of my life, I, choose, I chose fear. Uh, but now I get to, um, to, to choose love. And I think in this whole journey, I think it's one of the, the greatest journeys a human being can do is the journey inwards, the journey to self-discovery and self-acceptance. And I spent 15 years of my life trying to change the world by changing events and places and things outside of me trying to force things to happen to, to sort of soothe my, my wounds or whatever. And what I've found is I have more power to influence the world around me by changing who I am in the world than I can by trying to change the world. And that's every human being has this power and every human being has this gift. Every human being has this responsibility to change who we are in the world. And we have to be the change we wish to, to seek. And, you know, we need to learn to be kinder to each other. We need to learn to be less judgmental um, to each other. And, and rather than telling people to mind their manners, it's, we have to be the example. We have to, our capacity of you as human beings to inspire other human beings to, to good and to greatness is, is profound. You know, the analogy I like to use is in Vancouver, McDonald's was serving kale salad. Now, you said to me 10 years ago, McDonald's is going to have kale salad. I'll say, you're out of your mind. But how does McDonald's have kale salad? Um, it's simple. Because millions of people are making the choice to eat healthier food and to eat kale with every bite that they, of food that they put into their mouths. It's not these grandiose people coming in on a, on a white horse that are going to transform society. It's, it's the, who we are in every moment of every day in our interactions with other human beings that is going to make the most changes. Millions of tiny, tiny little actions that we do every day. That's how we change this world. That's how we change this society and overcome the plague of polarization. I, again, I'm, I'm just considering myself right now, um, you know, highly privileged to, to get to listen to you on this like basically one-on-one -on -one, um that i'll get to share afterwards um to my listeners and and uh, to anyone out there um all i have to say is um you know for one of my favorite speeches that uh um that I always go back to is Obama's um, speech on hope and change. Um, and, and this is what it's all about is, you know, like you said, it's about, you know, you made your transition from, you know, one identity to the other because, you know, you found a different identity um, that, you know, in a way suited you better. Um, and and then came huh? suited the world better suited the world better yeah um but it gives me hope it gives it, it does give me um you know i 
I can't really expect a you know utopia of you know perfection and you know where there's no crime and no there's there's got to be balance and but the fact that that you are who you are today coming from where you from who you were before gives me hope that the change is possible that acceptance of change is even you know something that people fear change so much um and you see it um uh, in religious groups and you see it in, in people that are so deeply rooted in their values um because whether your values are right or wrong they're yours and and but but we have to be open to change um you know, my mom and my dad grew up with, you know, certain values of, you know, religion and, you know, marriage between a man and a woman is the way it's supposed to be. And my twin brother is gay and, and married. And while it was difficult for my mom and my dad to accept that, um, they have done that. They have accepted that and they have changed. And they understand that because my brother's sexual orientation he still had the same values that were implanted by them you know by raising him and by teaching him and by the only difference is that you know he's not loving who they expected him to love and um but yeah changes change is something that we fear so much and and it, it, it was it's what kept my brother um you know in the closet for many years because he feared that they couldn't change and the, the thought of not having them around in a way was kind of like not what he wanted and and but you know if they can change if you can change um then you know we we can all aim to be a little bit better and, and with that i just i, I want to say thank you um this has been one of the most um, eye-opening and, and kind of like, um, I don't even know what word to use to describe what I feel right now uh, based on this conversation, because it's, it's kind of like, it's a, a bit surreal. I never expected, and it's because of my own predispositions, I guess, because we all have them, you know, like you tell yourself, well, you know, uh, neo-Nazis and white supremacists, you know, if you don't agree with them, to you are they're like I told you before, they're they're bad people, they're bad human beings. And but you don't know what got them there. You don't know why they do what they do. And without understanding it, it's it's hard to judge and it shouldn't be something that we do, even though we need to protect ourselves from people that want to harm others in any way. And I you know, I just again, I, I'm 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 thankful. I'm honored to that you you know decided to share your story with us and our little podcast. And and uh, you know, for my listeners, I know this one is a little bit outside of what we normally talk about, but it's something that I really wanted to to share. It helps me, and um, you know, you touched on something that's very critical for us here on the podcast, which is loneliness. And I can only imagine. Um, the amount, the level of loneliness you felt, because you know the world is a little bit lonely um, uh, today than it was before. Even though we're more connected, you know, 
technology-wise, but you know, the people that accepted you before, the people that you accepted you um, after you left, the people that, and then you find yourself in this, like you said, this void. It's uh, it has to be tough, and then from a loneliness space, and I'm just happy that you found um, the, the right people around you that that you were able to open up to someone who who showed you the compassion and the love that you deserve. And, and you know, thank you again. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for for thank you. Thank you. This privilege. The only thing I just want to clarify at the end is is Compassion is incredibly powerful. The ability for compassion to transform people is incredibly powerful. Um, although not everyone is is ready to be transformed or is capable of transforming in that moment. For that reason, compassion has to be accompanied by healthy boundaries and consequences. Um, Dov, my counselor, he held me accountable. Um, he, for, for what I I had done and, and was going to make it when compassion is is partnered with healthy boundaries and consequences, um, it's truly a powerful powerful thing. So that when people decide to continue harming, we put boundaries and consequences around that that behavior. And, and, you know, but we do it from from the right place, not out of not out of judgment. When I think about you know the people at Charlottesville, what I see is four-year-olds having temper wounded four-year-old having a temper tantrum in a grown man's body having said that there's nothing more dangerous than a wounded four-year-old having a temper tantrum in a grown man's, man's body and we have to respect um that danger and and in respecting that we put boundaries and consequences on that behavior minimize and, and respect that they can harm people. We can have compassion and recognize that they're still capable of harm. Uh, and healthy boundaries and consequences is how we protect ourselves from that so that we don't get harmed ourselves. And, uh, you know, the hardest thing in the world is to have compassion for someone who has no compassion. But aren't they the ones that need it most? Yeah. That's absolutely true. Thank you for being on the show. I want to end you. it right there. It's perfect. <laughs> thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing with us. Thank you for having me on. You know, we're, we're, we're on the uh, after hour special here, guys. And uh, I just wanted to, to make sure that we, um, that we talk a little bit about um, Tony's book. Um, Tony, if you want to go ahead and, and, and tell people where they can get the book and... Um, if you enjoyed the conversation, um, a lot of uh, a lot of the journey and and the understanding of compassion, forgiveness, atonement, making amends, and and how do we make a difference? Um, it's all in in my book, The Cure for Hate: uh, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. And you can get it at Amazon or whatever your your favorite uh, place where you like to like to buy books from.